Hey folks, Josh here. This fall at Gen Con, the largest tabletop gaming convention in the world, our show will be hosting its very first live recording session, taking place August 2nd at 8 p.m. in the Crown Plaza Hotel in Indianapolis. This show will include a one-time recording of a What's in the Rift one-shot, as well as a prize drawing amongst ticketed guests where we'll be handing out exclusive What's in the Rift Gen Con 2024 custom t-shirts, as well as a Cortex Prime RPG handbook signed by the system's creator, Cam Banks. Tickets are $6 and available via Gen Con's events page. You can find more information and a link to the sales portal at rift.show forward slash live. We can't wait to see you there. Rusty Quill presents. Hey folks, Josh here. I've decided to drop in another feed drop for our companion podcast, Riffin on the Rift, this week. The reasons for this are that, well, we just want to bring you content on a regular basis, and weekly seems to be good for that. And it's nice to have some understanding of the characters in the story that you're listening to. Uh, that said, you can go and follow Riffin on the Rift on its own feed, where you can find it ad-free. But if you continue to choose to listen to it here, we have no problem with that either. Before we get into the episode, we do have a few announcements to cover. If you're unfamiliar with our audio drama offering at Gas Station Drugs, Wireland Ranch, I highly recommend that you go and catch up on that before the last two episodes of the first season, which will be dropping at the end of October and early November. And our next episode of What's in the Rift will be releasing on October 29th, and that episode is titled... It's robbing time. Without further ado, this is Riffing on the Rift. We do need like a surf rock. We yeah. Riffing on the Rift. <laughs> yes, yes. Welcome to Riffing on the Rift, an infrequent and often unscheduled companion podcast. To what's in the rift. Welcome back to Riffin' on the Rift. I am your host, Josh Burgess. Tonight's episode features Joseph Rutledge, who plays Tosca Orange. From the cast of What's in the Rift, we have Yolandi Hamilton, Ryan Daler, Grayson Sam, Summer Schlenker, and Patty Hamilton will be joining us later this evening. So let's kick things off. Joseph, tell me a little bit about your projects outside of What's in the Rift. I make Wireland Ranch, which was recently called a, let me pull it up here, mythological indictment of capitalism or mythologized indictment of capitalism. I think that's the best description I've ever heard of it. Wireland Now is a show where I take the historical elements that inspired Wireland Ranch in the real world because those major tragedies and events sort of become their own cosmic entity, like 9-11, for instance. The energies put forth by mankind have nowhere else to go but to form these entities. So any overwhelming human vice as a representative god in Wireland Ranch somewhere, and they're always scheming to make the current time their era if they can. 
And then the dope show about a reality show where people are given free reign over recreational drugs left on this island with a very strange house on it. And they're filmed and broadcast. It's going to explore like all the very dark sides of human existence. I love Wireland Ranch, and I can't wait to hear more of Wireland now on the Dope Show. Uh, folks, if you haven't, go listen to Wireland Ranch wherever you get your podcasts. You won't regret it. Why don't you tell me a bit about the world from which Tosca hails? Okay, so in the world Tosca comes from, there's no religion. Everyone is immediately confronted with death upon birth. Like it is the one thing that your whole life is centered around. The way that ancient Egyptians revere death, that is basically the overall society. There is a place you guys know as Florida, where those of us who don't want to consistently consider death leave and go to, and we are called natives. In order to confront the feelings of death. A major spiritual practice in lieu of religion is consuming psychedelics to confront your own mortality from a very early age. Some people can't cope with that and they are sent away from the rest of society. So everybody's getting high to confront death? How soon does that begin? From birth, really. It's the main focal point of a person's life is their eventual death. So is it just like an ego death that they're after here, or is there more to it? Not only the ego death, but also like you're never more faced with your own mortality than when you're on DMT, for instance. That sort of like hyperspace that's going to exist for everyone outside of this life is sort of confronted in your real life. And the fear that comes with certain psychedelics is the same fear that we have when we're about to die, that sort of overwhelming existential dread. And I think that my society has determined the best way to have a healthy society is by having a society focused on the legacies that they leave behind and by proxy death. And how does your character Tosca Orange fit into all that? The biggest problem Tosca has is that he is, for some god-awful reason, congenitally immune to most narcotic substances and poisons. So he's never been able to take part in these rituals that are required by society. So he got sent to the reservation, Florida, just because there was no place for him in society. And he always took that pretty hard. Somebody who did not have the choice to be involved in society at large. Right. I want to know a little bit more about what the world looks like with everyone focused on their own death. You've already said that religion, at least as we know it, is not a part of your world. Are there rites and rituals that have sprung up in its place? There are rites and rituals that are generally community-based. When a person becomes 17, for instance, we have a special celebration, and that's done on a national scale once a year. Other than that, these small-scale rituals are all ran by a shaman within local communities. What's the significance of turning 17? That threshold between what has been considered adulthood for pretty much since kids no longer worked in factories, part of living in a society where your death is the focal point is things like menial labor become less stressful. People find it easier to work. They don't have to consider the things that they normally consider. They sort of use work as a way to escape from their own mortality rather than it be a thing that might cause their mortality. 
what does that look like for your world? Do you have folks that that glorify death, that seek it, or is it more just dealing with the existential dread that comes with confronting your own mortality? People are a lot more open to risk than they would be in a typical place because everybody knows they have this endpoint. Instead of it being a thing to dread, it's a thing instead to look forward to because you know there's something beyond based on what you've learned from your own brain through the uses of these rituals and chemicals. I did forget to mention the importance of the reservation. Once you're outcast from society, you're sent to Florida, and Florida is an actual hellscape. It's nothing like what we see now. It's this broken down colony of people who have to survive on their own. One of the major draws is for people outside of the reservation to visit the reservation to sort of look down at the squalor so they understand how well they have it in their own society. People in the reservation are just miserable. I mean, that does sound a lot like actual Florida to me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no difference there. <laughs> You've essentially turned Florida into a zoo on top of being a reservation. So now you might understand why shooting Herman in the back with the hammer thing wasn't that necessarily that big of a, uh, a problem. <laughs> Right. As a tourist there, there are certain implications of, about his relationship to people that live in Florida as well. So Florida, not a super fun place to be, yet we do find Tosca in Orlando, Florida. And Tosca is how old in what's in the rift? 40. He's been there for three he's been decades. There. He's been the there most least, of his life. Right? Yes, yes. Because you start the ritual process at eight years old. By the time he was 10, they understood that there was no hope for him. So he was immediately sent as a child to the reservation. What does growing up in what is essentially an open air landfill of people like, and what does that do to someone? It hardens a person for sure. Morality is something that is simultaneously important to Tosca, but also a thing that he sometimes does not have the luxury of. Luckily, he was taken in by a small group of people who were respectful, just trying to make it through, and they protected him until he went out on his own at around the age of 20. What are some of the kinds of things that Tosca had to do in order to survive in, in this hellscape? One of the things that regularly is alligator hunting, like just to survive for food. That's something that Tosca was good at and something he was employed to do several times over the course of his life to provide food for certain communities, but he never stayed within those communities because he'd much rather be alone. In our first episode, we find Tosca in a new apartment in Orlando, Florida. Is Orlando of any significance to Tosca? No. Before the change came about and the reservation was even open, Florida was Florida. So now what the remnants of that are after 50 years or so of this sort of style of existence Everything there is sort of collapsed. So you still have the hotels in Orlando, for instance, but they are all downtrodden and ramshackle and they haven't been maintained. Nothing there works properly. Electricity is spotty and usually only ran by a community. It's not a very easy place to live, but there is no particular significance to Orlando. It's just he likes to move around and Orlando is where he happened to be that time. How far back does this fascination with death go and how has it shaped history in Tosca's world? 
a lot of a person's life when they're fixated on death is about what they leave behind and how they are accepted in the afterlife that's to come or what they've experienced, at least from very specific psychedelic drugs that bring that feeling of mortality out and make you more aware. Like in your normal day-to-day life, you're not constantly like, oh, death is right around the corner, right? Unless you're like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me too. Unless you have that constant reminder, that that dark feeling inside you. That allows people to care about things that they used to care about less. Work, for instance, it's more of a hobby and a way of escaping rather than a job situation. Everything's handled on a very socialist basis outside Florida. There is still a caste system. For instance, rulers of local areas will have a huge tomb built where just your standard worker would have the gravesite, for instance. What they build for their leader is what they essentially leave behind for the world. And so they put a lot of thought and care and work into the tombs they build for their leaders, mostly consisting of high-level shamans and political leaders because politics are never going to go away, right? But politicians there are much more like an Egyptian pharaoh rather than like Joe Biden. (laughs) So are they just giving children away who can't? Yeah, they send them away completely. Like if a child puts up too much of a fight or cannot interact with the psychedelics the way that they want them to, they immediately get sent to the reservation. No questions asked. I was wondering along similar lines, if there was something like accessibility, the same way you might have, you know, an ASL interpreter, is there something for those kids who seem intolerant? No, the reservation is a very important form of entertainment for the overall system to work. So they have no qualms about sending as many people there as they can, even sometimes under false pretenses. Even if it's the child of your pharaoh politician? No. Not if it's the child of a pharaoh politician. Certain castes are completely exempt from being sent to the reservation. Anybody in power or with relationships to one in power would never go. And then what would they do to be able to visualize and conceptualize death? Basically, when you're on DMT, there's three thresholds, right? There's the first one where it's like, if you've seen the movie, the Gaspar Noé movie, what's, which movie is that, Josh? Enter the Void. So the first level of a DMT trip would be that. It would be those patterns that constantly shift and move. The second would be a waiting room in hyperspace, right? And it's just sort of this place where you're stuck. You know there's something beyond there, but you can't get there, right? And a lot of people get afraid in that place. So they refuse to take the third hit that will take them past that into the third phase of the DMT trip, which is basically an entire visualization of how things are going to be the day that you die within your own brain. They pump that into you as many times as they possibly can so that you know what to expect. You're no longer afraid of it and will live the life that they want you to live where you're not concerned about yourself as much as people would be in a normal society. It's very much about killing the ego to keep this system in process. Okay. I'll play devil's advocate a little bit more. In that case, what do they do with those wealthy children? At a certain level of power, it is just ignored. And then do those families still go on to have like futures in politics if they can't understand that critical piece? Yes, because the leader always will. The leader is appointed by their willingness and understanding of the process. 
Mm. So in lieu of elections, what we have is when a person shows a particular aptitude for the ability to cope with these psychedelics and to guide others through these experiences, they accrue power in that way. And would those be the shamans of society or would they be different? Yes. Well, very similar to shamans. Very similar. There's a local community shaman who oversees all rituals done within that community. And then there's a larger scale, sort of like the Vatican. So people are appointed power by being good at taking drugs? Yes. Yes. But it's not just being good at taking drugs. It's being good at coping with the idea of death generally. The drugs are just a way to prime the mind for that. Everything in the society is designed around that. Very similar to, to ancient Egypt. Does it have to be drugs that trigger this comfort with death or are they allowed to explore other ways? The drugs are always required. That is a foolproof way that they've learned most people can cope with things. I have a question about uh, natives in Florida. You described Florida in this sense as a hellhole. They have no support. They're viewed as a zoo and really anything goes. Has there been a time the natives of Florida have risen up, come together against this mocking upper class? Yes, they have attempted to do that quite a few times. And that is always put down very swiftly with extreme measures. But it's also really hard to get them to cooperate with one another because everyone's so focused on their own personal survival. So it really takes like a strong leader in order to pull everyone together. And those come along very few and very far between. So this is kind of like a brave new world situation. Yes, very much a brave new world situation. Yeah. Um, how does the general public view how the natives are treated? Is there a good amount of like brushing it off because they won't fit with society or is there a group that empathizes with them? There are groups that empathize with them, but never to a level where they would accrue any sort of backing from the people they would need to in order to change things. It's been tried before, but without that bit of showcase for how things could be, things don't stay the same outside of that. So it's much more like a glad it's not me situation. And is there ever the threat of people who do the drugs and who understand this? Can they ever be thrown in there anyway? I would imagine that's a possibility, especially for political reasons. I am not aware of a certain time that's happened, though. Are there cases of the natives trying to sneak back into regular society? Oh, yeah. They constantly try to immigrate. There's a DMZ between what we know as Georgia now and Florida. And there's people constantly willing to risk their lives to cross that DMZ where they're obviously killed in order to escape the life that they currently live. Florida, Georgia line, a lot different. Yeah. Florida's <laughs> whole movie, think about yeah. that. <laughs> it looks like Patty Hamilton has joined us. Patty, thank you. And welcome to Riffin' on the Rift. Do you have a question for Joseph about his world? So you might have mentioned this since I came in late, but how would they even know if someone like actually is coping with it or just pretending to cope with it or that they're reacting to the drugs or just pretending to react to the drugs? Like, how would they even so know? There are very specific machines and MRIs that they're hooked up to while they're on the substances that give constant readings to the people observing. They've studied those and they can tell exactly what the visual images that the person is seeing with their AI. So. To finish answering your question, Patty, there is a threshold with something like DMT, right? And sometimes a person's own survival instincts will not allow them to go any further. And those people are immediately sent to the reservation because the reservation, again, is necessary. It is a place of like 
depravity that the people in normal society go to to get out the darkest of their whims and then come back to their normal lives where they can be not happy and not necessarily an individual, but a person who is existing within a society the way that we all do. So they can go over to the reservation and just pirate it out, rape, pillage, plunder, whatever, and then just go back to regular life like it never happened. Yes, it's a very popular thing to go on like a week vacation and do whatever you want and then come back and pretend like nothing ever happened. Like Westworld. Yeah, like Westworld. So I have to ask, is there a reason that we're choosing the word reservation when IRL, there's a lot of pushback for Native American issues and stuff like that. I'm thinking reservation more in the Brave New World style. But if you think that's an issue, then I will completely get that. I think that we're casting it in a negative enough light that we're paying the proper respects and painting a reservation in the actual negative light that it should be painted, right? A reservation shouldn't be something I, that exists. There shouldn't be a reserve for people that rightfully occupy land. Yet in a fucked up society, that's what we have. Right. Right. And I'm just thinking like we have Indian reservations across the country. I tend to agree with Josh, but I have no feeling about the word either. So it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, I personally don't care. I just I understand they, what you're saying. they went through such the rigmarole of like changing college sports teams. Some people get really like drunk up on it. I think a lot of people <laughs> who are going to be listening understand the content that I make anyway. And that would be something that I would use to illustrate a point in Wireland, for instance. So I think with the proper audience, it wouldn't matter, but I could also understand how it could eventually be a problem. I think as long as we're upfront and we're not using the word in a way that is exploitative, we're probably safe. And as we need to make sure that we consult with people in that community as well, should we be concerned about it? Because we can speculate all day, but the reality is none of us are the people that are most directly impacted by that. In the 10 minutes I've been on the call, there's there's a lot of similarities to how people came from Europe and shunned the Native Americans into these little reservations. It just that was the first thing I thought of. But that um, is sort of also the point is the colonization of certain areas for the entertainment of others. So really, I mean, it's like I'm not married to that word in any way. It's Josh's call in my mind. So whatever. I don't know. It's my It'd personal opinion that using the terms reservation and natives is painting it in a negative light and drawing attention to the issues that we have with reservations existing in the first place. Right. And therefore forcing people to consider like, oh, is this something that I've been OK with and I shouldn't be OK with and prompting them to learn more about it. And that's also a really good mm -hmm. point. Yeah. So I, I think in the way that it's being used, we're advocating for the people on reservations rather than casting it in a, a light of this is okay like let's just leave it alone right it's dark subject matter reservations are also dark subject matter i you know i also think that keeping it allows us to engage in that conversation at large yeah, everybody needs to hear our largely privileged opinions on this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah they yeah, should yeah, yeah. i'm saying it allows us to give people who live on reservations a platform to talk about it we can find someone who is knowledgeable lives on a reservation <laughs> the way you said we can find someone makes it sound like we're gonna go out and get a token <laughs> native person to come on <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you know what I mean. If we have a captive audience and they're listening, then it's our duty to share that platform with people who can Agreed. use it. Yolanda, yeah, yeah. you were part of a DEI-focused podcast for a long time. You know what a lot of the concerns yeah. are in that community, especially when it comes to things like racial sensitivity and ambiguity and those types of factors. So my gut instinct is that the most important yeah. thing is that we're not treating it as a trivial matter. And I think by definition, how Joseph has laid out his world, it is not trivial anywhere. Okay, so we got off on a bit of a tangent there. Uh, we do have to talk about Tosca as a character, though. So, Joseph, we are going to talk about your character Tosca through the lens of your character sheet. We will be discussing the different parts of your sheet. We do use Cortex Prime, and Cortex Prime is a modular system, and we have built a custom system to tell our story. The modules that we are using for our version of Cortex Prime are distinctions, relationships, assets, specialties, special effects, and those are the ones that we'll be covering today. We are a relationship-driven show. There are a lot of interactions that we anticipate between the different members of our cast, and so therefore relationships is our primary listed outside of distinctions. However, Tosca only has relationships with other cast members. Almost every other character on our show has some type of tie to their world in the form of a person or a pet or some other entity that is important to them in the world that they come from. Whereas Tosca has no one. Can you explain that? I mean, some of it's obvious from what you've told us of Tosca already, but why does Tosca have no important person to him in his own world? Because befriending someone in a place like Florida where he exists, they're almost certain to die in no time. So there's really no point in developing relationships, and he learned this very early on. In place of a relationship, you did ask to have a permanent asset, though. Generally, an asset will be used for a scene. However, Tosca possesses what is a permanent asset, forbidden knowledge. I do not expect you to divulge that bit on this show, but can you talk a little bit about the nature of that knowledge? Why this would be an asset to Tosca? So... I have knowledge that every person in the Rift wants to know, and I have that knowledge firsthand written down, but only a limited amount, a very limited amount. And the fact that I can use that as a chip with any particular character at any particular time to learn more about the Rift or to put pieces together, whatever it might be to solve whatever mystery we're dealing with, I think it will come in handy. On Tosca's specialties, you have chosen for your major specialties, metaphysicist and scoundrel, and for your minor specialties, spiritualist and investigator. I want to talk about your major specialties to start. Tell me why you chose metaphysicist. So Tosca is very well versed in conspiracy theories generally, and also he sort of believes that there's magic in reality, not in the way that we think of magic generally, but in the way that a situation or a circumstance can be molded into a plus or a minus for someone else. It's all about how he can use the opportunities, whether they be tragedies, whether they be anything, use those for his own well-being and for his own survival. Scoundrel is, he spent his life doing scoundrel shit, basically, <laughs> just That's to fair. stay alive. I think we've, we've elaborated on why the world he lives in would encourage that sort of behavior, so that all tracks. Yeah. So let's talk about your minor 
specialties then. You have spiritualist listed, which I find particularly interesting given his inability to be spiritual in the context of the larger world. Yeah, his inability to be spiritual in context of the larger world does not matter to him. He understands that there's something more that he doesn't understand, and he's consistently trying to seek out what that thing might be through reading, through philosophy, etc., because he can feel something there. He knows this isn't it. The universe works too perfectly for this to be all, and it's just the pursuit of what that thing might be. I have to stop myself before we get into a philosophical discussion about the nature of the universe, but let's yeah, yeah. let's talk <laughs> about the last specialty on this list, investigator. What makes Tosca an investigator? Because he is very careful in everything that he does. Every new place that he moves to, he spends weeks scouting out in advance. He tries to understand the area. He tries to understand what the dangers might be and how to avoid them. And all of that is done through observation and investigation of the area before he makes any sort of move in his life. So we've covered Tosca's lack of relationships. We've covered this bit of information that he has with him from the outset of our show. And we've covered the things that Tosca is good at. I want to talk about special effects, the things that make Tosca unique. Every character that has special effects in our game has a hindrance of some sort. Tosca's is called doing it the hard way. And this is where he will step down any distinction die that he rolls by two. So in this case, a D8, which all our distinction die start out as, would become a D4. And you gain a plot point for that. And a plot point, of course, is a currency that you can use to affect the narrative in some manner. You were tasked with coming up with two special effects of your own, some of which we've touched on already. And I was hoping that you'd talk about them a little bit. Your first is, are you sure you took enough? Which is, you are congenitally immune to most drugs and poisons. Yeah, and that is the reason Tosca was sent to the reservation in the first place and it's also a thing that he uses to rob tourists when they come because he's congenitally immune he can do this amount of drugs with them and they think they're on the same wavelength when the person either gives in to the fear or does something else or passes out whatever that might be he uses that opportunity to rob the tourist and leave the area real stand-up guy i love it so your second special effect is forced to face reality and this one reads once per scene you may step up a beneficial die for anyone and step up a detrimental die for yourself or you may step up a detrimental die for an adversary and step down one of your beneficial dice during a contest what is forced to face reality and how does this fit narratively with tosca so Tosca has a particular ability to pick out what bothers people about themselves and what they would be ashamed of if you were to point that thing out. And he uses that to his advantage very consistently. He picks out a person's weakness and uses that weakness to embarrass them in a situation where he has to do so, where he would gain some sort of upper hand from doing that. Great. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Joseph, and talking to us about your character, Tosca. I want to thank each and every member of our cast, especially Patty Hamilton, for joining us late despite other obligations. And thank you to you, our listeners, for spending time with us tonight on Riffin' on the Rift. This has been Riffin' on the Rift. Join us next time as we discuss Ryan's character, Cord Farouk, and a world where sleep shares a direct relationship with age. Infants never sleep, and eventually folks die by slipping into a forever sleep. Thank you, and bye.
What's in the Rift and Riffin' on the Rift are gas station drugs productions.